There once was a pixie named Koi. She travelled far and wide, seeking out forests of the kind that she most liked. She walked around with bare feet that had the toenails painted sky blue. And the eyes through which she looked most attentively at things had that colour too. The pixie poked about in all the clefts and crevices, all the corners and crannies, touching the surfaces of everything she came upon with the greatest care. She caressed the scaly lichens, tree trunks with bark like papyrus, slimy translucent fern fronds, golden leaves that were like macaroni shells. Best of all, she gently pressed her feet into the soft moss. The moisture was satisfying for Koi. It was like a swim in cold water. One day she wandered into some shadowy woods and met the local guide there, a man named Igor, who was so absurdly tall and slender, well over two metres high, that he towered over his guest. He had to stoop so as not to get his hair caught in the branches of the forest's many trees. But Egor the guide had names for everything. His knack was finding a word for all his guests might experience in the forest. And even though they made an odd pair, the pixie and the guide enjoyed each other's company in that bush. The pixie skipped and danced through the trees, hopping over roots and jumping in puddles. And the guide lumbered along, pointing out this and that, introducing Koi to his friends in the forest, his giant stride, taking in ten of her dance steps at a time. With great effort, Egor crouched to the ground and picked up a flake of bark that had fallen from a tree. There was a single mushroom growing out of it. On a single stem, like a strand of the pixie's hair, there was a vibrant coloured cap, marked with concentric circles of every shade of blue. Egor the guide started to tell the pixie the name of the mushroom, but she shrugged her shoulders and skipped away, not letting the name settle in her mind. For her, the name didn't matter. Egor wondered if the fact that she was closer to the ground meant that she didn't need the words to make the mushroom stand out. The pixie found an opening in the trunk of one of the trees, somewhat like the shape of a diamond. It was lined with moss and had a cylindrical spiderweb strung up inside it. We call this tree a shadow pine, the guide said and the arachnid what made this web is called a curiosity spider. Oh, the pixie said, it's a beautiful web. And I think I'm small enough and so flexible that I could fit inside the tree. I don't recommend it, Igor said with an avuncular chuckle. And besides, I'd have to try and follow you, and I'm not sure I can come with you. But the pixie was already clambering into the spiralling cocoon of the curiosity spider's web. 
the guide tried to protest. Hey, Koi, please, uh, I have duty of care. Uh. But the pixie had already slipped in. Egor tried to follow her, but his limbs got caught in the sticky filaments of the spider's web. If someone had walked past that shadow pine then, they would have seen the funny sight of the gangly guide struggling to get out of the little wedge in that tree. His ass was stuck in it. His arms and legs were dangling out. Eventually he managed to break himself free. He didn't know what sort of adventures Koi the pixie might be having. He'd never been able to fit himself into a place so small and secretive. He was slightly worried, of course, and because of that bloody duty of care, he had to wait for her. So he sat down on a mossy trunk and rested, and then he lay down on it. Whatever she was doing down there, that pixie was taking a while. Egor's clothes were all damp, and he was kind of uncomfortable. He remembered the training he'd undergone to become a guide, and recalled how he could get hypothermia in those wet clothes. And looking around, he realised nobody was coming into that forest any time soon, and so he stripped off to his birthday suit. Then, deciding to make the most of the chance to rest during his shift, Egor lay back down on the soft bed of moss. It was better than any mattress he'd ever slept on. It was like the moss's soft, damp leaves were massaging him. And when he fell asleep, it was like the moss had him in its embrace. And the sense he got from his dreams was that the ultra-fine rhizoids of the moss had spread throughout his brain that he was being held in place by it, and that he too had squeezed into a mysterious, shadowy realm where anything could happen. When he woke up, Koi the pixie was sitting on the ground next to him. She seemed to have been smudged with ash and charcoal, and had in her hands a precious stone, perhaps an amethyst. She didn't seem embarrassed to find the guide naked, or like she'd give a bad review. But she said, I'm sorry, Egor. I must continue with my journey, and where I'm going, no guide can lead the way. And Egor, having dreamed on, or in, or with, the moss. He quietly murmured to himself. And where I need to go, he said, there will be no words or names for that which I see.
Winter looms. I light the fire. The solstice isn't far away. Already there's much more dark than day. Cold fronts come up from the southern ocean, dumping rain over the island. Everything's damp and has a musty scent. The fungal threads that have been biding their time in the soil now quiver and spurt out colourful fruit, as if at random, all across the yard. I've come to love these months. It's a great time to rest, to retreat, to slow down the pace. When I feel a pull to socialise or to stretch my legs, the weather usually discourages me, or my mates can't be asked. Although every so often I go and see a footy game or drink stout in the nearby pub. The locals huddle by stoves or fire pits and give account of the flow of creeks on their property's boundaries or talk of how the old shed has finally come down or how they need to get the grader in for the gravel driveway. They speak of how the egrets have settled amongst the cattle on the paddocks marked by volcanic rock or how the silver wattles are springing up from where last year's floods cleared the woods. I interrupt their banter to boast that at my place, the moss is doing well. I declare that if moss is satisfied here, then I should be too. I feel like any place that suits a diverse range of mosses must be healthful for a human. It's certainly beautiful seeing the ripples of green spread throughout the grass watching moss sprawl over bare stone and climb up the bark of trees, seeing plump wedges of the stuff chinked under the water tank or carpeting a window sill outside. Some of it seems to have become muscular in this autumn weather. Green rugs and pillows are laid out everywhere, as if for some curious picnic. The jack jumpers know the forecast better than the bureau. At the onset of autumn, they renovate their nests, covering them with dark materials which will absorb more light, and they move them into better spots so that their subterranean shafts don't get flooded out. I have scrupulously studied the jack jumper nests in the three and a half years that I've been here. I love them. Among my favourite things about them is that they seem to become a nursery for plant species once they've left. Herbs and grasses take root in that rubble, and some of the disused sites are now coated in a thick layer of moss. One of them looks like a turf house I once saw out near Connemara. In turn, the moss becomes nursery and habitat. It makes a comfortable bed for certain seeds, supports the next round of growth. By trapping organic debris, bits of dirt, leaves, dead bugs, the moss may help to make soil. 
There are insects and other almost invisible creatures that nestle into the minute leaves of the mosses, and the networks of mycelia entwine with the fibres of the moss. In turn, they may affect the prosperity of the moss. It's been shown that some insects are responsible for transporting moss spores around the forest floor. To my eye, moss species don't instantly leap out for easy identification. It takes a thorough bit of looking. I've been roaming around with a field guide I borrowed from the library. The book offers me a lot of Latin names, which don't often stick in my noggin. But still I notice certain varieties, and now have names for some soft green mounds, frizzy straw-coloured piles, delicate lace-like growths, almost black slicks that creep along bare rock. Some are found all across what once was Gondwana land, the ancient southern supercontinent. Another seems to have an even more enduring heritage, going back millions and millions of years. It is as the bryologist Robin Wall Kimmerer has said, Looking at mosses adds a depth and intimacy to knowing the forest. It certainly does. And we have reached a moment in time in which many of us have become aware that our world is sustained by minute beings and unseen forces, the smallest of our fellow travellers. We've got excited by fungi, by bugs, by soil, by lichens, by moss. We are drawing close to these modest critters, taking inspiration from them. On the other hand, we still drift further and further away from meaningful experiences with the world around us. At the risk of sounding silly, I suspect the separation is nowhere more evident than on the internet. At the train carriage, I'm disconnected. But a couple days a week I head into the library, and there's a lot to learn in there. But when I was looking up more Tassie moss species online the other day, the website's artificial intelligence tried to guess what question I really wanted to answer. Who discovered Tasmanian mosses, it offered. Where did Australian moss come from? Are mosses in lichen spreading themselves across Australia? Is sexual reproduction possible in Tasmania? There is no technology that can replace our own senses when it comes to relationships with place. And it seems to me as the world around us suffers from our ignorance and insensitivity, that there are no relationships more important than those we have with the ecosystems to which we belong. We have to notice what we live amidst. We must see and smell and feel. We must learn from even the mosses.
the North American poet Theodore Retke, wrote about the act of moss gathering, about stripping wads of moss for aesthetic or utilitarian purposes. Something always went out of me when I dug loose those carpets of green, he wrote, or plunged to my elbows in the spongy yellowish moss of the marshes. And afterwards I always felt mean, jogging back over the logging road, as if I had broken the natural order of things in that swampland, disturbed some rhythm, old and of vast importance, by pulling off flesh from the living planet, as if I had committed, against the whole scheme of life, a desecration. The world, its ecosystems, these are resilient. They survive so many acts of vandalism. But what we have done globally over the last century or two, it all adds up. And so I find that some days I'm prone to an almost ludicrous degree not to want to touch anything. To fell a tree, trim a flower, gather moth just in case it disturbs some other creature whose habitat's already under threat just to beautify my life or make it more convenient, comfortable. Of course I know that humans have to interact with the bush, that the whole network of biological life is not so precarious. And although it's not entirely a modern existence, my life has its impact on the planet as much as anyone else, I'm linked up with all the complicated chains of commerce. But I'm not just trying to appease my conscience by living off-grid, for instance. I'm trying to find gaps in the great barrier between humans and the rest of the world. And this sort of weird, hands-off approach is part of my having a crack at that. Years ago, I hiked in the Cuchimatanes Ranges in Guatemala. I strayed there pretty much by accident, but I'm glad I did. For a week, I wandered in the smoke-coloured mountains, big jagged peaks that were thickly clad in green. Corn grew in hard, shiny husks. Coffee bushes rose from chocolate soils. Low stone walls marked out small plots and red-hot pokers grew as a weed, so ubiquitous they were like a crop. It was a wet, hot week. It rained at 3pm every day without fail, as if a timer had been set on some regional irrigator. Then I'd shelter wherever I could, in empty schools or on church porches, and cook up a meagre dinner. One morning a skinny young man named Santos led me to a peak which looked out over a great valley. We were four kilometres above sea level and we could see for miles. Most of it was agricultural country. But later Santos and I descended down a green gully full of ferns and liverworts, orchids and mosses. 
He said plenty of the land we'd seen already would have looked like this a century earlier. A mosaic of greens. A biosphere full of fecundity and life. About a third of Guatemala, Santos told me, was forest nowadays. But in the days of his ancestors, it might have been closer to 80%. The fruit, coffee and other plantations wiped out most of it. Much had also been cleared by landslides. Yet these too were a result of deforestation. In heavy rains, avalanches of soil now fell no longer held in place by the root systems of trees. There were large forest reserves, especially in the northeast of the country, but everyone knew that the situation was fragile. All it would take was one government to decide that it didn't do enough for their economy for protected status to be removed. Maybe we have been surrounded by trees for too long, Santos said, because our parents can't imagine how the trees could ever run out but we are telling them how it is. They will be gone if we're not careful, and it will be the ruin of our country. On one of the rainy arvos in the mountains there, I lay in my sleeping bag on a veranda and looked closely at a dark-coloured moss, a lantern moss, as it's called, on the march across a limestone path. Mosses need a film of water on their leaves to photosynthesize and thus to grow. They have no real roots and so they can't draw water from the soil. The water must come from above. Moss is paralyzed by drought. The monsoon in those mountains then suited this moss very well. Moss also plays a part in reducing flood risk. Those thirsty green masses can absorb thousands of litres of water in one go, diminishing how much of it gets washed into ever-accumulating drainage systems. It's increasingly obvious that we must keep our forests intact, that each bit of bush we clear buggers up large swathes of the landscape well beyond the bounds of that particular area. That's been clear for a fair while, actually. But this is a different kind of argument from that which the poet might suggest. Breaking apart the defenceless plant. Theodore Retke felt like he was brutalising the whole process of life. His heightened emotions tell us that our relationships with the world can't be summed up economically, or even ecologically. There's another layer altogether. Reading that poem of his, I understand why I also don't want to be the sort of person that inflicts cruelty on the life forms around me. It seems especially sad to be someone that harms something that can't defend itself. And that's not an economic principle, or something measurable. It's an idea that reaches into the most basic meanings of being human, that touches something deeper within us. Maybe there's a relationship between moss and human morality.
I can hardly say that in Guatemala I noticed much of the sorrow that comes with significant landscape change. But a month wasn't enough to get a real sense of that, I guess. Yet back home it's a different story. For example, I've sometimes strayed into the wreckage of a logging coop, post-clearing. And the misery of seeing that has sat in my guts for days. And there are certain verdant forests that I love, which also bulge with mosses and ferns and liverworts. If they someday get clear-felled or burned, and in my lifetime some of them probably will, all that'll break my heart. And of course, that's what Santos and other conservationists in Guatemala and around the world feel as well. About 350 million years ago, moss somehow crawled out of certain aquatic environments and became the first of the land plants. If nothing else impresses us about mosses, this achievement must mark it as one of our most important predecessors, front runners on terra firma. And although they appear mostly on the margins of our lives, in some places, Mosses are the heart and soul of their ecosystems. Take a bog, for instance. Technically, bog land is a wetland built on dead plant materials, generally mosses. A genus called Sphagnum is responsible for most bogs in the world. Soaking up plenty of rainwater, but poorly drained, Meters and meters of a material called peat can accumulate. This decays slowly because there's little oxygen under the surface layer. Instead, an acid is released from the old peat. An acid which is not too dissimilar to vinegar. Human bodies can be preserved in this bog acid, pickled like so many cucumbers. I met one of these bog bodies once, although I knew him only by his nickname, Tolund Man. He'd undergone a bog burial 2,500 years before. It turns out that he was hanged and then thrown into the swamp. He was around 40 years old. A fairly short fella, even for back in the day. His last meal was a primitive porridge 
and he'd also eaten some fish, perhaps the night before. And now the man from Tolund lay in his showcase as if he was only sleeping, a smile creeping gently across his leathery face. He looked like he was having a pleasant dream. Even with all the skills of archaeologists, and seriously, it's impressive that we know what was in a bloke's tucker box 2,500 years back, but even still, we can only really guess what the life of Tolund man was like. It's hard to bridge the gaps of ancient history, even when looking at the actual pickled body of a person who once lived and breathed, and walked and ate, and danced and argued and loved and dreamed. He did those things as we do, and yet in a context that's so far removed from our ways and means that he may as well be an alien. Yet those of us who study history, in whatever capacity, we tend to think that to learn what ancient lives looked like helps us understand what we get up to in the present. That, at least, is why I went to meet the bog body. We can tell at the very least that Tolund man died a violent death. Perhaps he was a criminal. Perhaps it was a ritual sacrifice. Maybe he'd been involved in some romantic intrigue or some struggle for power. But whatever the case, he was hanged. That violence characterises so much of the past and so much of the present is something you realise when you learn about the world before us and around us. It is the relative peace in which I live that is the contrast. That's what I've come to believe, at least. A perspective that quickly builds into a spirit of gratitude. My guess is that Tolland man lived a precarious existence, more so than mine that the conditions of life in his tribe on the Danish heath were somewhat unstable, or perhaps perpetually impoverished. That maybe in his hungry, porridge-eating society it was easy to make a wrong step, to stir up someone's bad temper, to fall out of favour with the powers that were. Capital punishment, I suspect, was meted out more often upon his community than it is mine. And I'm just glad not to be a part of that. I wonder, was Tolund man anxious? Did he have anxiety? Did he worry about what others thought of him? Did he have tricky love affairs or fear that some political or religious authority had it in for him? Did he find it hard to sleep? When we go back into the past, we find that human concerns don't change too much. The context does, a lot, and the details, the symbols, the outfits. But there's heaps we share in common with those whose lives only appear to us in archaeological museums. Among the main currents in the human story is the fact that we want to belong, to feel like a useful and beloved part of a mob. 
my sad guess is that Tolland Man, at least at the end of his life, at the mystical age of 42 or thereabouts, it's just a guess, but I suppose that Tolland Man died in the midst of a feeling of a lack of belonging. So when you look at him in that exhibition, that smile, enigmatic as it is, makes you wonder. Perhaps Tolland Man found some peace in death after all. Or maybe that's just what happens to human skin. The way it twists as it slightly shrinks, having undergone the tanning process in the humic acids of a sphagnum bog. Sometimes when conditions are tough, in a drought for instance, a moss can simply put its existence on pause. There's no movement or metabolism. Entirely static, it hovers somewhere between life and death, waiting for water to come so that it might revive itself. And so much so that scientists have been forced to think about moss when they define the nature of being alive. By so many standards, these inactive mosses could be classified as dead, which would then make their return to activity a form of resurrection. Suppose I thought a similar thing when I met with Tolland Man in that Danish museum some years ago. The face still had such a sense of character that I thought there should be no reason why the man shouldn't shake himself from his long sleep, wipe his eyes, smile a little more broadly, and tell us what he'd been dreaming all these years. But he did not. Perhaps the Danes still think he'll come back to life, though. In the 1970s, Danish police took the fingerprints of Tolland Man for some reason. I guess in case he's resurrected and robs a bank or something. Around here there's a moss species that I think belongs to the genus known as Hypnum. The word Hypnum comes from the ancient Greek word for sleep. Pillows and mattresses used to be stuffed with such mosses apparently. And it was said that sleeping amongst these species was beneficial for a good night's kip. Like other mosses and lichens, it was sometimes made into a special tea or tincture. This one to help the sleeper get some rest and see pleasant dreams. 
I'm not about to tear chunks of moss off the trees or rocks here, even if my regular old pillows have just about had it. But sometimes I've slept in mossy glades, pitching my tent down, not directly on beds of moss if possible, piercing them with pegs, but near enough. And although I haven't analysed it scientifically, I wouldn't be surprised to find that my sleep was improved when I've snoozed in these green groves, and that I've also remembered more of my dreams. Then again, I tend to sleep best in my tent, and almost always have a head full of stories when I do. Maybe it's not directly related to which moss species are growing in the forest, but I'd like to think it is. I have noticed birds around here, like the eastern spinebill, which by the way is one of the most beautiful birds ever. I've noticed such birds using strands of moss to line their nests. I can't speak more highly of the architecture of birds. Many of them are bloody geniuses. The spinebill's secretive cup of grass, hair, cobwebs and moss is a masterpiece. No human builder I know makes homes so ecologically integrated with such a sense of the spirit of the place in which it's constructed. But moss must be an interesting material to use. It would often be wet still in the nesting season, which doesn't seem to me ideal. And it drains poorly, I suspect, the moss retaining moisture long after rain has fallen. haven't been able to watch them meticulously enough to tell you whether a spine bell gives the moss a miss in La Nina years, but that would be a worthy research project. Yet perhaps there are techniques for getting the softness and insulation of the moss while finding ways to stop the nest from getting waterlogged. Perhaps the mosses are well layered or just smartly placed so that the water runs away more easily. With some birds, the moss is used on the outside as a sort of camouflage. In the northern hemisphere, the song thrush will make a frame of twigs which is stuffed with moss leaves. Then a woven grass cup will be built upon that, lined with pulped wood and mud, with another layer of moss on the outside. And the red-breasted nuthatch lays down a heap of soft material in its nest, fibres, down, and moss. I have read of a bird in Tanzania which will build nests using only a single species of a common hanging moss. Maybe these moss structures would take a bit more work to keep clean, but it must make it mighty comfy for the young'uns when they emerge from the egg into this world. Back in my own forest, I think of the spine bills who have been born amongst the gum trees here, carefully hidden behind the screens of leaves. Among the first substances these hatchlings feel, their first experiences of touch apart from the gorgeous feathered bodies of their parents, might include a species of moss. Which is not a bad way to start a life. 
If you ask me, knowing the textures of your environment is at the heart of a happy existence. Such was my childhood. And I enjoyed it, even if on a Tassie bush block such a tactile inclination also means you risk getting stung by jack jumpers like heaps. Perhaps maternal spinebills choose to dress their nests in the feathery leaves of Hypnum cupressiforme, the sleepy time moss that grows here in Tassie. This moss may in turn inform the fables that unspool in my brain when I descend into my own stints of deep sleep. I have no doubt that the birds who shelter in a hypnum-lined nest would receive the same sleep-enhancing side effects. Which raises, for me, the usual unusual question. What do baby spinebills dream of?